make followers of Christ, make disciples. That's part of our, our calling here as believers and at CBC. And the next slide um, kind of narrows that down to a statement, I think. Um, our mission is to reach people wherever they're at in their, in their journey and, and nurture them into a maturing relationship with Christ. So we want, to know, we want to not only come to know Christ by trusting in Him, but then we want to grow in Christ. And um, that, that all is underneath an overreaching vision. We talk about all this in discovery class, an overreaching vision out of Matthew 22 where, uh, to summarize it, it says that we are to love God and love people or love God and love others. And, and so we have developed, uh, actually years ago, uh, before it was developed a discipleship model um, that is characterized by the, those statements out of Matthew 22. We love God, we love people, and we're in the we love God section right now, preaching through that. Pastor David talked about pursuing Christ passionately a couple of weeks ago. Um, Dean last week spoke about following the Bible faithfully and that you can't really pursue Christ passionately without having his word. And today we're going to talk about what, what should happen with all that passion and all that Bible knowledge ought to be that we are now ready to proclaim Christ boldly. And then, of course, over the next three weeks, we'll move into the second part of that model, loving others. But for today, let's focus on proclaiming Christ boldly. We'll look in a moment at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I've titled my message, What's My Motivation? I think an actor once asked Alfred Hitchcock, trying to get into their part, Alfred, what's my motivation? And he said, your paycheck is your motivation. Well, uh, hopefully we're going to find out what Paul's motivation was today to do the things that he did. How many of you have ever heard of a guy named Abraham Maslow? Ever heard of Abraham Maslow? Some of you have. Uh, He was a pioneer in psychology. He developed a theory of human motivation. It's called a hierarchy of needs. You normally see it in the shape of a pyramid. It's based on different levels of needs. The most basic base level is hunger and thirst, right? And then above that, you'll find safety and then love and acceptance. And you move on up to the top of the pyramid, <clears throat> excuse me, at the top of the pyramid is self-actualization. And so, and it's a helpful it's a helpful tool. I, I, I think um, it's something that counseling and others are able to use. <clears throat> but I wanted to emphasize, as I was thinking about Maslow's hierarchy, I was thinking about Paul's life as I was reading in 2 Corinthians 5. And <clears throat> long before Maslow wrote his hierarchy of needs, Paul wrote about his motivation for being a follower of Christ, for being a disciple his motivation for preaching the good news, for proclaiming Christ boldly. And he often defied Maslow's hierarchy. Paul kind of did the opposite. He went without food and shelter a lot of times. He denied his own safety by placing himself in harm's way and sharing the good news. He was a social outcast and not accepted many of the places in which he went, in in which he um, uh, dwelt. And self-actualization for Paul was found in losing himself in Christ. And so, how many of you know that the kingdom of God, well, it appears to be upside down. Really, the world's upside down. The kingdom of God is right side up. But it is definitely um, often very different from the way in which the world tells us that we are to live our lives. And so, I want to look at what's our motivation for proclaiming Christ boldly. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, by the time we get to 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 9, Titus has already reported back to Paul that many in Corinth have humbled themselves 
and they have repented of their uh, struggle with Paul's apostleship, um, disunity within the body, uh, following after false teachings. But then in 2 Corinthians, Paul, he goes ahead and writes about those things anyway. He kind of talks about them again, just to be certain that, that they're really understanding and embracing the truth. And, and here in chapter 5, he explains a lot of different things, but one would be his motivation for ministry. And, and Paul often connected doctrine with duty. Doctrine with duty. What God has done for us motivates us to serve him. Now, I'm talking about in the context as believers. Um, we don't do anything to come to know Christ as Savior. We simply believe and trust in him, and, and we have the gift of eternal life through our faith in him. We'll talk a lot more about that as we go through the message today. But um, Paul often connected what God's done for us to what motivates us to serve him. Uh, there was one woman one time who said, Pastor, man, it was a great sermon except for all the therefores at the end of it. Now, think about that a minute. God has done this, and therefore, we need to go and do that. She didn't like all the therefores. Paul's very liberal uh, with his therefores. And today, he writes of at least three things that should motivate every believer in our service to God, and particularly in proclaiming Christ boldly. So let's go to verse 9, if you would, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. And we're going to talk about the fear of the Lord. This is the first motivation for Paul. And I'm going to say it this way. I do what I do because of who I serve. I do what I do because of who I serve. Verse 9. Therefore, Paul says, we make it, there's one of those therefores. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror or fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciousness, in your consciences. I do what I do because of who I serve. Fear the Lord. <clears throat> in the Hebrew, it is the word yare, Y-A-R-E-H. You could preach for a year on the fear of the Lord. So I can't possibly define it completely for you in the moment, but I would define it for our context today as this. A sense of awe that leads to humble submission. A sense of awe of God, a reverence, an honoring, a holy fear. A sense of awe that leads to humble submission. So notice in verse 9, Paul says, my aim is to please the Lord. Now let me just say that above all of these three things we're going to talk about that should motivate us to proclaim Christ boldly, above all of them, for Paul, even more important than the judgment seat of Christ, even more important than the love of Christ, even more important than the commission that Christ has given him, Paul says, whether I'm there, whether I'm here, above everything else, my goal is to be well-pleasing to Jesus. I want to be well-pleasing in whatever I do, wherever I'm at, whether I have plenty or whether I don't, I want to be well-pleasing to Christ. But he puts it in the context, this fear of the Lord, in the context of, for a moment, in these first few verses, the judgment seat of Christ. And he says in verse 10 that we must appear, believers now, who've trusted in Jesus, we must appear before him. And the words, the phraseology there uh, really refers to the word revelation. Things are going to be revealed on that day when we appear before him. Now, for now, for many of us, it's kind of easy in our Christianity to hide some things, even pretend. In fact, I think some of us sometimes can be a little bit guilty of being carnal 
Christians. Uh, a carnal Christian is one that's maybe a little bit worldly, a little bit fleshly, uh, maybe even at times deceived by the enemy. Uh, you might ask yourself a couple of questions. Am I concerned more with myself than anything else? Am I concerned more about myself than anything else? Uh, and just be honest in answering that. Uh, is my love for others growing cold in my walk with Christ? You, you might be, you might be <laughs> a little bit carnal if that's the case. And Paul says that the truth of our life and the truth of our ministry, not only that, the truth of our motives are going to be revealed at the judgment seat, at the bema seat. You remember that in Greek towns, uh, they had a platform where leaders would uh, make decisions. Now, this is not the great white throne judgment. Let me emphasize that again. That's for lost people. And uh, that will occur uh, for those who've not believed and trusted in Christ. So we're talking about appearing before Christ because we trusted in him. We have entrance into heaven. We will eternally be with him. But what we've done here is going to be evaluated. 1 Corinthians 3 kind of talks a little bit about this and uh, kind of poses the question, is your service, what you're doing, your ministry, is it based on things that are eternal, things that matter, things of truth, um, gold and silver, things that will withstand this journey? Or is, is your lot, your motivation, your, your, your service, is it based on wood and hay and stubble and things that really uh, won't test, won't survive the tests of time? So as believers, we're going to give an account. Paul's, Paul's recognizing this and saying, I know I'm going to stand before the judgment seat, and I want to be well-pleasing. I'm going to give an account of my resources, an account of my time, my knowledge, my education in the Lord, my service. So the fear of God motivated him, and the rewards, the possible rewards at the judgment seat motivated him. You know, as a kid, uh, I was thinking back, I, I was motivated by discipline. How many of you were motivated by discipline with your parents? I remember one day I got home from school and my mom said, Kevin, today you stay in the house. Don't go anywhere. She turned her head. I ran down the alleyway in order to go and play with a young friend. Well, it wasn't very long until I noticed my mom coming up the road. It appeared as though there was a paddle in her hand. That was possible. Um, so I, thinking that I could escape, maybe she didn't see me, I ran the other way, ran the long way back. And of all things, I ran and hid in the, in the doghouse. That was prophetic. That was a prophetic move on my part for what was about to occur. So <clears throat> I was motivated by discipline. But let me tell you, when it comes to my parents, I was more motivated by the rewards that I saw God, that, that were evident from God. I'm, not, I'm even talking about rewards here. I saw, I, I saw the joy of the Lord in their life. I saw the fruit of their God-fearing, surrendered lives. I saw God's provision for them. doesn't mean we had more than we needed. It doesn't mean they were always happy. But I saw productivity in their lives. And those things motivated me. Not only the discipline, but the reward of being servants of the God Most High, that motivated me in my life. Paul was motivated by the fear of the Lord and reward at the judgment seat of Christ. And in verse 11, he says, I do this to persuade men, to persuade men. Ask yourself, if you were as excited about proclaiming Christ 
as you are about the next book you're going to read, the next golf tournament you're going to play in, the next business deal you're going to make, the next athletic event you're going to go to, how would the gospel thrive in our, in our world today? If just we in this room began to be motivated, as Paul was, by an awe of God, so that I humbly submit and surrender my life to you, Lord, knowing that, that out of the fear of the Lord, there's going to be one day when I will stand Stand before you, Lord God. Therefore, I do what I do because of who I serve. I serve the king, the risen king. That was one of Paul's motivations. All right, but let's look at his second motivation here. Go to verse 14, if you would. Okay, so I do what I do because of who I serve. Now we're going to talk about the love of Christ. Now, I would argue this was a bigger motivation for Paul. Now, Others can differ, but I would argue this is a bigger motivation. Paul would say, I think, I do what I do because of what he's done for me. I do what I do because of what he's done for me. Verse 14, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore... From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. That's hard. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now he said the love of Christ compels him. The love of Christ compels us on December 3rd and 4th to do something called follow the star. And it's a lot of work. It takes a lot of people. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of investment. Why do we do it? It better be, and I believe it is, because of one thing. The love of Christ compels us to tell the story, to tell the story of what Jesus has done for us. The word compel means to be gripped with an inner pressure. To be gripped with an inner pressure. Knowing the price that Jesus paid gripped Paul to live for Jesus. In fact, I want us to do something. I want us to ask the Holy Spirit right now if he would restore, as we review the reasons that we just read in verses, beginning with verse 14, let's ask the Holy Spirit if he would restore, renew in us a passion that we would be compelled to proclaim Christ because of the reasons he died for us. I do what I do because of what he's done for me. Let's talk about what he's done for me. Here's the first one in verse 14. He died that we might die. He died that we might die. Now here's a tongue twister. The death of death and the death of Christ means victory over death for me. <laughs> Let me say that again. The death of death and the death of Christ means victory over death for me. What am I saying? I'm saying Jesus freed me from the fear of death. Theologically, that would be that he is my victor. He is my ransom. He is my rescuer. He has destroyed the one who had power over death, according to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. See, the power of Satan to enslave me with the fear of death is rendered inoperative because of the death of Jesus Christ. And a lot of fears go away with that. The fear of the unknown, the fear of losing control, 
You know, a lot of people are driven in this, in this world to live best life now, even though they don't even know what that is. Just live and do everything you can now because they don't know what's going to happen. They're afraid. They're worried. Well, that's settled for us who are in Christ Jesus. He died, and my old self that was lost and separated from God has died with him. I, the fear of death has no hold over me. And not only that, but neither, neither do I have to fear death, but neither does sin have to, have, have to be a master over me. I'm not saying I'm perfect and I won't struggle, but I, I'm free from the fear of death and the mastery of sin over my life. If you need some verses on this, read Romans chapter 6. Go to Romans chapter 6. What I'm saying is the one who has died to sin, the person who has died to sin, does not have to respond to a pattern of sinful living. In other words, you don't have to. Well, I'm a sinner, so I might as well just sin it up because I, I'm not going to be able to do any better anyway. No, Christ Jesus died so that you don't have to be mastered by sin. On Friday, I laid to rest a friend, not only a friend but a spiritual mentor, he passed away Tuesday night, but before he passed away, I had him in this message as an illustration. I didn't even know that he was about to pass away. His name was Donald. Um, Donald said to me once early on, he said, Kevin, I want you to know that I do not get offended. I'm thinking, yeah, right. <laughs> you did not, everybody gets offended. Well, I can say I know of about twice in 20 years that I was with him, almost week, well, weekly, 20 years I was with this man weekly. I only know of two, two instances where I know that he actually did get offended. Why did, he, why did he say that to me? He said, because of the power of, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I don't have to be offended. There are other ways. There is resolution. There is reconciliation. There's letting it go. There's covering it under the blood of Jesus. And, 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 he, and so he just refused, I'm not going to get offended. And I thought, so what's a great example of what Christ has done for us? I've died. I'm dead. There's nothing that you can do to ultimately hurt me if I'm hidden in Christ Jesus. He died so that I might die to the fear of death and the mastery of sin over my life. But he goes on in verse 15. And that ought to motivate us. Wow, my old man is dead. So I just need to put the shovel down and quit digging him back up, right? Okay. Now, he died that I might live. So there's more to this sentence. He not only died that I might die, he died that I might be raised to walk in the newness of life. There's Romans 6 again. Go and read that. So because I died with Christ, I can overcome sin in my life. Because I live with Christ, I can bear fruit for God's glory. I can be productive. I think I've heard it said this way. Christ died our death for us that we might live his life for him. Christ died our death for us that we might live his life for him. Now, I can't do that in the flesh, in my sinful state. I can only do that as I am redeemed by him, and I put my faith and my trust in him, and I live by the power of his Holy Spirit rather than in the strength of myself. So he died that we might live. 16 and 17 then goes on to say, not only, not only that do I die um, because he died, not only... Do I live because he lived, but he died that I might share in new creation. We no longer, and this is very important for proclaiming Christ boldly, we no longer look at life the way we used to. If you've put your faith and trust in Christ, we just read in 17, old things have passed away, you're a new creation. Now I know we're still struggling with that old man, but positionally, 
the Father sees you as a new creation, and we get to walk in that. At times, <laughs> we get to experience that, that newness of life whenever we are out of reverence and fear of God, wholly surrendered and submitted before him. We can look at life in a different way. We have a new view of, view of Christ. Paul said we don't view him after the flesh, or in other words, from a human viewpoint. We don't just worship the babe in the manger, but we worship the glorified Savior who sits on the throne, who's returning again, right? Returning again to bring us back with him. I have a new view of Christ because of my life that I have in him and the new creation that I am. I see him as my Savior, my victor, my rescuer, my deliverer. That's why I love the names of God. To me, it just describes all that Christ is for me. I have a new view of believers I don't know, but I have a feeling that probably most of us, hopefully, most of us in this room have trusted Jesus as our Savior. And so we're Christians, we're believers, and we don't look at one another the same way as new creations. We shouldn't. We struggle with this. But we don't see one another on the basis of race or on the basis of education or on the basis of finances or a position. Paul wrote in Galatians that there is neither Jew nor Greek. He said, in fact, you all are one in Christ. So because of being a new creation, I have a new view of Jesus. I have a new view of believers. And, and I have a new view of people around me in the world. I don't see people just as friends or enemies or coworkers or customers. See, when, when we come to know Christ, we're elevated to a, a new sight, a new view, a new vision. And we can see people as Jesus sees them. And they are lost sheep in need of a shepherd. And therefore, because of what God has done for me and that I've died to my old way of life and died to the mastery of sin over my life and I've died to the fear of death and because he died, I have life and I'm a new creation and because of those things then, I am compelled by the love of Jesus that I want to share what he's done for me to everyone that I can. I want to tell the world, Jesus saves and he transforms lives. And you don't have to live in the hopeless world and lifestyle in which you're living. There's hope in Christ Jesus. So I teach several, <clears throat> excuse me, several Bible studies at, an, at, an organ, at a company called DMI um, in Cedar Hill every week. And, um, I'm, and listen, it's not a church setting. This is a business setting, all right? And these are construction workers, many of them. And I have a lot of really, 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 really strong Republicans. <clears throat> and I've discussed multiple times the biblical ramifications of seeing people as Democrats or Republicans. And a friend of mine who's since uh, had to, or not had to, retired and moved off, he would always remind us, and I love this, it's so simple, there's only two types of people in the world. There's believers and unbelievers. That's it. There's believers and unbelievers. That's how we view through the lens of new creation. We view one another as believers or these are unbelievers and therefore I need to boldly proclaim Christ. Well, I need to boldly proclaim Christ to the believers as well. But I need to boldly proclaim Christ. Paul never lost his passion. He was motivated by the love of Christ. He said, I do what I do because of what he's done for me. It's pretty simple. Pretty simple. Verse 18. A third thing that motivates Paul is his calling. His calling, his commission, the commission of Christ. I do what I do because of what he's entrusted to me. I do what I do because of what he's entrusted to me, the calling that he's given me. 
Verse 18, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, underline that. That is, that God was in Christ. I mean, here's what it is. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that verse, verse 19, it says that we have been, that God has committed to us the word of reconciliation or the ministry of reconciliation. What is the ministry of reconciliation? Well, in a couple of phrases, uh, I would say it's the message we proclaim and the work that we do as believers. That's simplified. But the ministry of reconciliation is the message we proclaim, Christ Jesus died, buried, rose again, went to glory, returning again. That's the gospel. And then the work that we do in the kingdom of God. That's our ministry. Now, go back to the beginning. Sinful rebellion caused us to become enemies with God, right? We know the story, Genesis 3. Sinful rebellion caused us to become enemies of God. And therefore, we needed to be, and the word that you hi- that's highlighted in these verses is we needed to be reconciled. What's the word reconciled? It means to be changed thoroughly. It means to be changed thoroughly. Now, religion is man's feeble effort to do that. But only the person of Jesus can tra- change thoroughly a person so that we might be able to have relationship with the Father. And he's going to give us some details about how that happens. And I'll get to that in just a moment. But we need to be changed in order to have relationship with the Father. Verse 20, it says that every believer has a mission to boldly proclaim Christ. In fact, it says that you are an ambassador. I met one time the ambassador to Bermuda. Tough job, huh? Think about it a minute. <laughs> wow. Name was Jeffrey Slater. I probably shouldn't say that. Um, at any rate, uh, What's an ambassador? An official representative sent to speak on behalf of a nation. Sent to other nations to speak on behalf of the nation from whom he is sent. An official representative to speak on behalf of a nation. And Paul said here that God makes his appeal for reconciliation, how? Through us. Through believers. Through Christians. You're his mouthpiece. You're his representative. You know, the Roman Empire had two types of provinces. They had what was called senatorial provinces where the peaceful folk lived. These were the ones who weren't at war with Rome because they had already submitted and they had already surrendered. But then Rome had imperial provinces. These were the places that were not peaceful, that were dangerous, and where folks, if they got together just right, were willing to rebel and ready to rebel. So Rome sent ambassadors into those imperial provinces in order to prevent rebellion. Right? So believers are sent into a rebellious world as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. And we are entrusted with the gospel. He's in, he has, <laughs> you understand, he's trusted you with the greatest story ever told. He's trusted you to be his mouthpiece. 
He's trusted you to get the job done, that we will boldly proclaim Christ in this world for the few 70, 80 years that we have. He has sent us into the world as his ambassadors, and when they reject you, they're rejecting the Jesus. They're rejecting the one that sent you. They're rejecting the kingdom of God. They're not really rejecting you. They're rejecting who you represent. This world is an imperial province that is in rebellion to God, but his ambassadors have been sent to declare peace and not war. We've been sent to declare peace, and here's the message. Be reconciled to God. That's the message we carry. Be reconciled to God. Everything that we are, everything we say, everything we do, everywhere we go, everything we watch needs to declare that message in our life. Be reconciled to God. The Father has made this possible because this is what you're telling people. The Father has made this possible to you, lost person, because he has imputed your sins to his Son. Now, what is impute? That's a banking term. means to put to one's account. Jesus died, and he was treated as though... He had committed your sins. Now let me clarify that last verse, 21, he who knew no sin became sin. That does not mean that Jesus sinned. He, could, he couldn't do that. He wouldn't be Jesus. He never sinned. But his, your sin was put into his account, and the Father treated him as though he had committed those sins. And then something even more extraordinary to me than that takes place, that God imputes the righteousness of Jesus into your account. I exchange my sin for his righteousness. When the Father looks at me, he sees me not as one separated by sin from him, but one reconciled, changed thoroughly by the blood of Jesus Christ and the life that Christ has now given me, that I I am changed so that I can have his righteousness. doesn't mean I'm perfect, but it means in the eyes of the Father, I'm a child of the King. That's that's the message that we carry. I, I like to liken it to... Uh, a story in the book of Philemon. Paul wrote Philemon about his servant Onesimus. Onesimus had stolen some stuff, fled to Rome, could have been crucified for his crimes. But in the providence of God, Onesimus met Paul. He heard the gospel. He was changed thoroughly. He was reconciled to God. Now Paul writes to, to Philemon and he says, receive Onesimus back and be, recon- and be reconciled to him. And in verse 17 and 18, Paul says this to Philemon. says, put his debt to my account. In other words, impute to me his sin against you. Put it on me. That's what happens with us and the Father. You can be right with the Father because he has put to the account of Jesus your sin. And when you're right with the Father, you can be right with others. We have that ministry of reconciliation which I think not only says be reconciled to the Father through the Son, but you can be reconciled to your whoever. You can be reconciled to that person because of what Christ has done. I know ultimately, in its ultimate sense, it's talking about, obviously, our relationship to the Father. But Paul would say, I do what I do because of what he's entrusted to me. Not only what he's entrusted to me, but what he's done for me. Not only what he's done for me, but because of who he is. I serve him because of who he is. You know, as I was thinking about uh, this passage and wanting to also look at just kind of some, some therefore, 
some therefore, some application. A lot of different things came to mind. What do we need to do? And so I kind of looked at myself. I, I said, Kevin, I think you need to evaluate your motivation for ministry. I'm going to ask you, if you would, to put up those inventory questions. I'm going a little bit backwards, maybe, from the normal order, but I'm a little bit backwards sometimes. Uh, yeah, just leave that up for a minute. So evaluate your motivation. Do you do what you do because of who you serve? Do you do what you do because of what he's done for you and what he's entrusted to you? How are you doing with proclaiming Christ boldly? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I'm not here to put tally marks in a, in a column of whether or not you've shared Jesus. This is just something for you, a tool for you to use to ask yourself, where am I at? Because the only person in whom you measure yourself against is the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So do I know the gospel and how to share it? I think some don't because they don't feel comfortable in how to share the gospel. Am I proclaiming Christ boldly or not? And if not, maybe why not? Am I seeking to develop relationships with non-Christians? Now, I know you have to be careful there, but am I seeking? Am I looking? Am I, am I open to, to sharing the good news with somebody that I, I'm, that's probably evident doesn't know Jesus? How about this one? Do I ask God for opportunities to share the gospel? <clears throat> I find that over the years in my life when I really pray and say, God, would you give me open doors? Would you send people? He pretty much always does. And I think he probably always was. But my prayer, because prayer is more about changing me really than it is God. And my prayer caused me to, to watch and look and get focused. Do I ask God for opportunities to share the gospel? I got to share this one right quick. Um, kinda, we kind of shared the gospel. When we went over to the high school this last week, we were touring the videography room. If you haven't ever gotten to go in there, it's some amazing technology that they are using over there for all the different programs that they're teaching. <clears throat> and what I liked was um, we were just kind of looking at the possibility of maybe some of those young people at some point might could come and help a little bit with some of our videography needs. And so I said to the teacher, um, before we talked to the class, I said, now, you're wanting me to describe these opportunities, right? Um, that they have to come in video. Yeah, 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 say what you want. Okay, well, I'm going to tell you about Follow the Star. Here's what it's about. It's about the birth, <laughs> and it's about the life, and it's about the burial, and it's about the resurrection of Jesus. And so I just kind of went through the Follow the Star stuff, kind of sharing the gospel there. Um, with them. A lot of opportunities. I wasn't even thinking of that as an opportunity until I realized I was up there doing it. I thought, wow, use this, Lord. Maybe it'll prick a heart. That last question, do I pray for lost friends and family regularly? So evaluate yourself. How am I ministering? Ask God. You can let that one go now. We'll pull another one back up in just a moment. Ask God to reignite your passion for lost souls. God, would you stir within me again? Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Because I would ask us, has the world's apathy infected the church? Has the world's apathy infected the church? This church, not just the ones that are in the news right now. This church, 
Paul was motivated to love God and love people. I told you, remember, he reversed the pyramid of, of Maslow's hierarchy. He turned it upside down. In fact, he just didn't even follow it. He did what he needed to do in order to, to share the greatest story ever told. Ask God to return to you the passion that, that you need and be willing to, take, to do whatever it takes and begin to practice God's call on your life in this area. Begin to practice God's call. I love Proverbs 16.3. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. So commit to the Lord what you do. He'll establish your plans. So just say, I'm going to begin to practice God's call to, to boldly proclaim Christ in my life. That means actually speaking it, but also living it. All right? How can, how can I be an ambassador for Christ? These are all things I began to ask myself. And I thought, well, attitude matters, first of all. Is evangelism something I have to do or get to do? It's something I have to do or get to do. Relationship matters. You know, I'm thankful for those opportunities sometimes when you can just walk up to somebody, share the gospel, and they get it, those kind of cold calls, if you will. But that's not really the normative, I think, probably, for most people in sharing the gospel. In fact, um, evangelism without relationship often comes across as a sales pitch. I, I even think people feel like that sometimes. Yeah, I feel like I'm making a sales pitch. All right? so, so relationship matters in being an ambassador for Christ. So build some relationships. Start a ministry blog. Begin a book club. Have a Bible study with lost friends. Read your Bible at lunch. Pray for people on the spot. Quit using the, I'll pray for you, and say, let's pray now. Right? I don't know, make some t-shirts. <laughs> Do something to get people's, people's attention and begin to build some connections. And begin to see people as opportunities that the Lord has placed in your way to, pro to boldly proclaim Christ. So attitude matters, relationship matters, prayer matters. Pray before, during, and after this whole process, amen? And then the Bible matters. You cannot give away what you do not already possess. So we need to continue hiding God's word in our heart so that when, when people come and we build connection and we're ready to share the words in us and they will come out. You don't have to worry. If they're in here, the Lord will bring them out. And by the way, I believe the staff would love to know about what's going on in your life in this area. And if you've got questions or you've got some victories that you want to share, grab an email from one of the, one of the pastors on staff, one of the staff members, and shoot it to us. We'd love to hear at how the Lord is helping you to be an ambassador. And there's some things that we want to do to help. So now we can put up that other slide of CBC um, equipping, ways that we can equip you in proclaiming Christ boldly. Various things that are mentioned here, let me go through it quickly. Um, first of all, we hope that all of CB, CBC Ministries has the gospel as the backdrop to everything that we do. We hope that the good news of Christ is being proclaimed in every nook and cranny of CBC, whether it's men's ministry, women's ministry, children's ministry, youth ministry, we hope the gospel is going out. So plug into those ministries to know more about how you can share the gospel and also to see that happening. But there's a couple of spots I just wanted to throw out. Our benevolence team is, a, is an outreach ministry. It is an evangelistic ministry. You see, while we are concerned about people's air conditioner bills and food, 
We are more concerned about their eternal life. And so the benevolence team does an amazing job of sharing Jesus week after week after week after week. And they would love to have, talk to Tom, he would love to have something called a benevolence mentor where you can come along some of these people who are coming in and out of our doors, come alongside them and love on them and maybe continue to share the gospel with them. I put follow the star on there as well. There are many other opportunities. I put something called your story form on there. In discovery class, we have this little form that asks three simple questions, and it kind of helps you encapsulate your story in a little five-minute uh, conversation and so that it's fresh on your mind so that when you're at the gas pump and you get opportunity to quickly tell somebody about your story, it's there. So we put on the resource page on the website, go to the resources, and you'll find this very simple story, this very simple form called Your Story. Grab it, fill it out. It'll help you rehearse the gospel in your life. And then I want to a challenge. If there's any small group leaders in the room, raise your hand. We got any small group leaders in the room? I see some here, 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 here. All right. If you're a small group leader, I'm going to challenge you to do what our youth are doing. They're leading the way. Every Wednesday night, our youth breaks off into small groups, and for practice, and in case there might be a lost person in the group, they share the gospel real quick. They just do a two or three minute share the gospel. So encourage your people at your meetings to begin to just share the gospel at small group, to practice. Practice what? Practice makes? Yeah, right. Here's another tool to help equip you. The official track for Cleveland Bible Church, I like to call it, is the good news, bad news track. A lot of good tracks, but this is a good one. And we've got some on the uh, little kiosk on the way out, your door, out the door there. I would ask you to take one, and I would ask you to give it away <laughs> to somebody. It's, we use that in Discovery as well. It's used in other places. Um, it's a great way to share the gospel. It's very simple. But beyond these, moving forward, we want to provide you with some evangelism training and some evangelism opportunities. Our youth just recently went out on a canned good drive in the process of collecting canned goods for an organization. They also shared the gospel. I think we have a family right now visiting our church because they went out and did that. So we want opportunities. We want to help you with opportunities. We want to help you with training moving forward. Hold us accountable to that. We want to provide evangelism resource lists on our website so that there are resources there that will help you in all the different questions you have in, in, in regarding proclaiming Christ boldly. I would encourage you to go find all the transformation videos and look back over those and get the link, keep it in your phone so that you can share the link with somebody else because those are all about the transformation of Christ. Another thing on our list is that you would pray for a person to lead out in evangelism training. We are looking for the person that God would send to lead out in evangelism training here at Cleveland Bible Church. And then finally, we've put, we've put you, our CBC's greatest evangelism resource. That's you. You are the greatest way that we could equip one another and go out and proclaim Christ boldly. <clears throat> All right. Well, I think I probably uh, turned a fire hose on and uh, overloaded you a little bit today. That's why I started putting the outline in there so you can go back and maybe uh, help. I, I apologize that I, I, yeah, he's saying thank you. I apologize that I, I give, put you on information overload. Um, do you do what you do because of who you serve? 
Do you do what you do because of what he did for you? Wow. And do you do what you do because of what he's entrusted with you, the gospel, the good news? That's what we're here for. That's the reason he's kept us here, is that ministry of reconciliation. And you never know what sharing the good news with somebody might do. Um, I'm going to share one quick story as we close. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. You've probably all heard this, but I'm going to share it again anyway. This is a great reminder. So there was a guy named, it's a true story, there was a guy named Edward Kimball who loved to share the gospel at his Sunday school class, but there was one particular young man that just wasn't getting it. So he visited this young man at the shoe store where he stocked shelves. And on that Saturday in the stock room, Dwight L. Moody believed in Jesus Christ. Now, if you don't know who Dwight L. Moody is, Google him. You should know, but Google him. Now, Moody became a great speaker, teacher, preacher. And under Moody's teaching, a gentleman named Wilbur Chapman believed. You may or may not have heard of Wilbur Chapman. He reached thousands of people himself as an evangelist. One of them was a professional baseball player named Billy Sunday. Now, Billy Sunday quit baseball after he accepted Christ, and he began to, to have his own evangelistic crusades, when eventually another young man named Mordecai Ham was saved. Now, Mordecai Ham was a little bit different. Um, he was a go-getter. He liked to rent a hearse to parade it through town to advertise his meetings. <laughs> But one particular meeting, he announced that the high school boys had been skipping lunch to go across the street to a house of prostitution. Well, the young men didn't like those accusations, and so those students decided they were going to go to Mordecai Ham's meeting in order to interrupt it. And another guy, whose name was Billy Frank, thought, I'm going to go see what happens. So Billy Frank went, he listened to Mordecai Ham, didn't really like some of what he said, but he returned another night anyway. And that's when Billy Franklin Graham became a believer and he preached the gospel possibly to over 2 billion people. But all because Edward Kimball shared the gospel as a Sunday school teacher. Now that's an amazing story. And we all have those amazing stories in our life. Of this person influenced this person and influenced this person. And it's not just true of the Billy Grahams of the world. It's true of all of us. And when we plant the gospel seed and we boldly proclaim Christ in the way we live and with what we say, we can change the world. Praise God. Praise God. I, I, I hope that today God would inspire a new passion within us to do just that. Let's pray. Actually, after we pray, sorry, one of the greatest ways that we can boldly proclaim Christ is to observe the Lord's Supper, communion. Now, I'm going to have more to say about that in a moment, but... After I pray and the worship team leads, you begin to exit out your left, come grab the elements, enter back into the right, and we'll talk more about it in just a moment. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for who you are. I thank you that you are my Savior. I thank you, Lord, for what you've done for me. You died. My sin is covered. The penalty of my sin is paid for. And I walk and am clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And because of that, my life is yours. And I thank you, therefore, what you've entrusted to me to share your life through me for the rest of my life. We ask it all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.